you want to finish what you started? You came to the right place. The girls that you came with, you might have to part with. Depending on how this thing shakes. Wabatosa, Kenosha, Economowak is in the house. Hang on a second. She's getting her chair because she knows how this works. She knows she's got me over a barrel. Mommy can't put it on. No, mommy can't put it on. Only daddies can do it. That's right. <laughs> You see, I'm brave when I'm home alone. How are you, buddy? Are you well? I'm good. I'm good. I'm secretly recording you right now. Yeah, you can just go ahead. Oh, you are as well. Yeah, I can see. This one. This is the content that people want to see. Yes. How does a, a member of parliament manage to take care of his children while navigating the great problems of international politics? That's basically it. Cartoons. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you with that. Okay, Walker team. Bye, Bye, Beatrice. Yeah. She's not listening to either of us right now. This is the this is the um, this is yeah this is the uh, what can I say? This is the the reality of uh, of, of, of coronavirus lock-in. I'm trying to hack out something on um, um, on what we're dealing with with China for a paper for this Sunday. Let's let's. Uh, Let's use this to talk through some of the ideas. Okay. So, first of all, thank you for taking the time to do this. What time is it over there? It's now three o'clock. Three o'clock. And where are you in England? So I am in West Kent. West Kent is the single most beautiful part of the kingdom. Uh, and indeed, up until about 800 uh, AD, it was a separate kingdom. It was the Kingdom of Kent. And uh, it is a fantastic uh, part of the country. It was never conquered. So unlike the rest of the country that was conquered by William the Conqueror, William very wisely went round Kent because the Kentish Knights were too fearful and too strong. So he, uh, he went round. So our, our motto is unconquered invicta. I love that. A military yeah. tradition and indomitability that no doubt continues to this day as Build personified that. by Tom Tugendhat. Hey, I'm here. My, uh, my fellow brother in arms, Mike, it's great to be with you. Thank you, thank you. We have tens upon tens of followers here that are going to be watching. <laughs> point. So quickly, maybe tell uh, you know for those who don't follow British politics uh, closely oh, yeah. in America, who are you, Tom? <laughs> Hi, Beatrice. How are you? I'm watching. I'm watching. Can I come back in a minute? No, no. You need to come watch. I'm going to come in a minute. Okay. Okay, sorry. <laughs> literally, how my life works at the moment. My wife is yeah. uh, my wife is working as well, and so uh, it means that uh, she uh, has managed to wrestle one of the children to the ground, and I'm left with the other one. Is she in France working, or where is she? She's not. She's uh, she's she's downstairs, and she's got him. She's got him doing his homework. So that's that's how she got him quiet. Not only does your wife work in the French government, but you yourself have French heritage as well. Right. Am I correct? So explain, yes. give us the origin, the hero origin story of Tom so, so I am, well, the name you will probably guess is not uh, English. It's actually Austrian. Tugendhat is an Austrian name. We're Jews from Vienna. My grandfather came over in the 20s and uh, married an English-Irish lady. So uh, our family is from Vienna and from Limerick and also uh, on my mother's side from just south of Paris. So there you go, so proper, proper old, full on European heritage. And where, uh, where'd you go to school? And at what point did you think about joining the military? So I went, uh, I did two degrees. I did a first degree uh, in theology and a second degree in Islamic theology. And 
After that, I was a journalist in Beirut for a couple of years, studied Arabic in Yemen, and did many other things. And did that thing where I sort of felt I had to, you know, had to grow up and get a real job. So I went, to, I went back to the UK, and I became a management consultant. And I was bored. I mean, like really bored. So I joined the Army Reserve. And uh, in 2001, my world changed and everybody else's world changed. And I was mobilized for war in Iraq and went to uh, Iraq in 2003. And uh, in many ways, never looked back. That's when I stayed, stayed with the military. And at what point, so you were an intelligence officer, am I correct? Uh, That's right. I was an intelligence officer with the Royal Marines unit, which was great fun. How does it work in the Royal Mar with in the British military? Do you specialize in a domain of intelligence early on, or are you a generalist from the start doing all forms of int? How does it work? So the officers are more generalists, the soldiers are more specialists by and large. But because I was an Arabic speaker, having spent all that time in the Middle East, uh, I was I was sent in really as an interpreter and forward intelligence officer. So I was I was doing. I mean, you'll remember in Iraq, certainly in two thousand and three. Uh, a lot of the intelligence was how can I put this politely? Duff, <laughs> and so uh, and so we uh, we found ourselves uh, driving around looking for folk uh, to talk to and uh, and engaging in conversations to try and work out exactly what was going on. By the way, of all the places you could have studied Arabic, you chose Yemen. I mean, no offense to our friends in Yemen, but you know Jordan's a beautiful place, Oman, Morocco. Why Yemen, Tom? So I went to Yemen because it was the mid 90s and it was one of those brief moments when Yemen was actually peaceful. So you could go and study in Sana'a. And it so happened that I was right. That was literally one of the few times you could have gone and studied in Sana'a. So I, I lived in a very peaceful Yemen for six months, a country I got to know and love very much. Uh, during one of those very brief windows when I could, I literally drove around the country, uh, you know, in, in the back of taxis visiting uh, some fantastic people in some amazing places. Uh, something that you couldn't do now. I mean, yeah. well, not, not unless you were completely nuts. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, uh, the fellow alumnus of the school I was at, um, we all heard about many years later when, uh, when he made the news, a fellow called John Walker Lind. I don't know if you remember. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so he was a year above me at school. Did you ever interact with him? I met him briefly, but, uh, wow. but I, I, don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think we would have described each other as friends even then. Known terrorist associate, Tom Tugendhat. There you go. Well, he wasn't then, of course. He was then a U.S. college student out to study Arabic. I believe wow. he converted to Islam while out there, but I don't think he was a Muslim when I met him. What was the theory on, I don't even remember why and how he was radicalized. Just by being there and studying Islam? I, I, look, I don't know. I, I don't know. But but there was uh, there was a... There were a few of the uh, of the kids who were out there. It was mostly it was mostly men, funnily enough. Men, most a few women went to study in Yemen, but not so many. The women mostly, understandably, went to places like Syria and Egypt, where it was easier. Um, so the 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 kids who I was at school with in 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 Yemen, we all lived in these big sort of Yemeni skyscrapers, and some five six floors up, you know, that you see in Sana'a, and those amazingly beautiful photos. They're sort of mud skyscrapers, incredibly beautiful. And, uh, you know, if you, if you lived in a, a place like that where all you're doing is studying Arabic, going out for tea, quite a lot of people, understandably, developed a very strong interest in local practices, and one or two of them uh, converted to Islam. Um, now, most of them didn't, didn't take the further step of going into radical jihadism, 
um, but, uh, but clearly, clearly he did. So you joined the military, you deployed to Iraq, you deployed to Afghanistan. How many yeah. years were you in total? And then take me through the decision about whether to stay in and make a career out of it, get out, and where did politics sort of enter the equation? So I, um, so as I say, I got mobilized for the Iraq war. So I was mobilized at the end of 2002 for, for the war that we knew was coming. Went out in 2003 and um, stayed in the military then uh, for the war. Went back actually helping on a uh, project to uh, launch the new Iraqi dinar, so to try and stabilize the Iraqi economy, which was a fascinating project, as you can imagine, running convoys delivering uh, money to all the banks in Iraq. Uh, I commanded the central region and uh, we delivered something around uh, two, $2 billion US dollars equivalent out of a total of four and a half billion dollars equivalent that was delivered inside Iraq in, in that time. And that was a, as you can imagine, that was a fascinating logistical exercise and, uh, and military one. And uh, I then went to work for the Foreign Office and helped out on a couple of projects uh, around the place and ended up helping to set up the National Security Council of Afghanistan uh, and then got asked to go and help set up the government, uh, the provincial government in Helmand. And uh, from there, as the advisor of the governor, I got called back into the military and spent the next two years uh, on the ground in, in, in Helmand, which I know uh, many of your uh, fellow Marines will know extremely well. Did you work closely you work with uh, the American Marines there or how, how integrated were, was NATO ISAF or whatever it was called at that time? So in the, in the very early days, I worked very closely with a particular Marine uh, who was a, a major in, 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 in your corps who would, had been based down in Lashkagar. He was, uh, it was a, a, a reserve unit, a guard unit out in Lashkagar and one Marine with them. And he, was, uh, he and I got on very well for rather obvious reasons. Uh, and uh, we had a very good time together. Um, the... I then worked very closely with the 82nd um, and we, for the, uh, for the capture of Musakala in the north, uh, I was serving very closely alongside the 82nd and, uh, and had a fantastic, uh, fantastic experience with the US Army. I have to say, I you know, really enjoyed working with them. So you could uh, have, sorry, go ahead. Go on. I was going to say, you could have stayed in, in uniform. Why choose a, a thankless profession like politics post-military? Well, you, you, you know, and I know that you get to a point, Mike, where you, if you don't like the orders, you've got to, you've got to go above, higher up the command chain, right? <laughs> and when I got, uh, when I got to, uh, when I got back from, from Afghanistan, the new incoming chief of the army staff, a guy who I'd worked with when he was commander of ISAF, was General uh, Sir David Richards, as he was then, and a fantastic commander. And he asked me to go and work on the army strategy branch, which I did for a year. And then afterwards, he was promoted to be chief of the defense staff, uh, so chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And he asked me to join him uh, as his military assistant, what you'd call the XO. And I had, a, I had an amazing time working for him. And I, Mike, we've both worked for uh, pretty strong characters, I think it's fair to say, over our, over our professional careers. And it's very unusual when after working with somebody as intimately as you do when you're the XO to a, to a guy and you travel with them half the time and all the rest of it that you walk away from that relationship thinking more of the person than you did going in and, and I have to say I was I was incredibly lucky I, I, I left three nearly four years of service working for now General the Lord Richards um, thinking even more highly of him than when I'd gone in but when he retired in 2013 
it, it was time for me to go. And, and you know that moment when you get that it's, it, you know, you've had a great time, the military's been fantastic, but it's time to go. And, and that was the moment that I got to. And there, were, and there were things that I didn't like about the way we were doing foreign policy. There were things I didn't like about the way uh, we were deploying our military. And, and the other thing that people miss, I think, um, when people think about the military is they think about the military as an arm of foreign policy, which of course it is, of course it is. But I would argue that you only really, really get to know your country if you live with people from every part of it. And, and the reality is the military is when, you know, you can quite literally, and I do mean literally, find yourself sleeping on the ground next to a prince on one side and a guy who was brought up in care who never met his parents and was adopted at the age of two and then multiple adopted 15 times after that, um, you, you know, on the other side. And so I got, to, I got to see a part of my country that I loved very much, but thought that we could do better for everybody. That is well said. And I do, speaking of princes, I, I do want to spend at least a half hour dissecting Prince Harry's defection to Canada, Canada or LA or whatever the current is. That's, that's really the content we're here. That's to really where we're going, is it? This yeah, is yeah. going to be really dull for anybody who's interested in anything else. <laughs> so how does, how does a, a military guy get, a, get elected to parliament? And then how does he become chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee within parliament? So uh, luck, if I'm honest, as, as, as you and I both know, Mike, frankly, most of our, our, our careers is based on extreme good luck and, uh, and, and not much else. Um, so I found myself um, uh, just married and my wife, uh, as you can understand, as I'm, I'm sure your wife's hugely supportive, but uh, my wife wasn't, wasn't desperate that I went into politics immediately. She was rather keener that I sort of, you know, perhaps had a career and made some money. You know, public service in the military is great, but it's not exactly where you build up the paychecks to, uh, to, to ride you through the rough years, is it? So, um, so I was, uh, there was a, a seat coming up and I, I wanted, to, uh, wanted to see how the process worked. It was in an area I know very well in Kent, because I'm, I'm actually from East Kent rather than West Kent, but it's not very far away. Who's your uh, football team if you're from East Kent? We, we don't do football, we do cricket. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh, I didn't know this. Yeah. Just for the record though, I don't support football. I support American football, I don't support. So your- I'm a big Steelers fan, but, but you know. Oh, Tom, Tom. <laughs> God, this is going so great until this moment. All right, we don't need to get into this. So your wife is reluctant, but you're curious, you. There's well, and there's things yeah. I want to do, you know, there's yeah. things I want to do in politics, there's things I want to change. And so I convinced her to let me have a go, right? And she agrees it, uh, that I can have a go so long as, you know, we'll then get back to the real business of, of you know, starting a business, getting, you know, getting, getting the family going and all that. And uh, the problem is I, I enter the open primary uh, in a very strongly conservative district, knowing absolutely certainly that I won't win. Uh, and, uh, and I ended up winning it. So, um, so that's how I got elected. And then, uh, uh, and then after a couple of years of watching uh, foreign policy going, frankly, all over the place uh, in the UK. Uh, the opportunity came at the change of the election, in uh, the new election in 2017, to, when people were standing for committee chairs, because our, our process is slightly different from yours. The, the chairs are divided by the parties according to proportion within Parliament. So, you know, the Conservatives will get more than half the chairs of the select committees because we've got more, more than half the seats in Parliament. Um, but then once the chair has been allocated as a conservative chair any conservative mp can run for it now it's not usual that you run in your uh, you know within two years that in fact it's the it's the quickest 
anybody has run for a chair in the past. And so I was very lucky to win it um, straight out. And you, you get, it gets voted on by your peers in, within your party, on. correct? And so you're, no, you're not voted on by your party. Any conservative can stand, but the whole of parliament votes. Oh, interesting. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So that you became chair in 20, when was that? 2015. Yeah. You just got reelected as chair a few months ago, correct? That's right. And how long do you, does your term go as chair, or is it just subject to whenever parliament reshuffles? So it, it's uh, your 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 period of office, your mandate lasts uh, for a, for one parliamentary term. So in theory, five years, but actually last time it was only two. You guys seem to be having a lot of elections recently. Yeah, well, we're going to the congressional system of every two years. You don't want to go to that system. I think when we when we had a beer in in England, the thing that made my job jaw, jaw drop to the floor was when you described how little money you need to raise to actually run for office in the UK compared with America, where it's just a disgusting sum that is required to run for Congress. Sure. So shall I, shall I tell you please, please. how much I spent? So we, we, we had a, a snap election, as you'll remember, in December last year, so about four months ago. And do you know how much money I spent on that election? This is going to depress me, no matter how small the sum is. I have no so idea. It's £13,000. Oh, my gosh. About $16,000, $17,000. Total. <laughs> not, not, not me. I mean, that's the total that was spent. That's all of it. That is unbelievable. That would be like a week's worth of spending. Not even that in a in a in a competitive congressional mm -hmm. election. Unbelievable. Okay, so let's get into the issues of the day here. Um, so you are you are quarantined at home in Kent, correct? And by the way, I assume your daughter is okay in the other room over there. She's I'm getting... fine. She's okay. fine. She's she, she's she's watching Pets too. And may I say it is a great movie? Just by the way. <laughs> okay. <good. laughs> So what is, so I think a lot of people were looking at the UK strategy and there seemed to be this shift, right? Originally there was this kind of hybrid model where the theory was you could develop a herd immunity among the younger population. And then I don't know if it was because of the data coming out of the Imperial College of London study or what convinced Prime Minister Johnson to change course, but I do think there's been a dramatic course change. So just kind of take us through what is the basic approach the government is taking to coronavirus right now? Sure, sure, sure. So yeah, there has been a, a, a switch. I mean, the government obviously denies it, but everybody can see it. So let, let's be frank. There, there's been, a, there's been a, a pretty clear switch. And the switch has come because um, the data coming out of Italy and, the, and that was analyzed by Imperial College uh, has made it pretty clear that actually the, uh, the implications for a herd immunity strategy are pretty severe, as in uh, an awful lot more uh, dead than, um, you know, frankly, anybody would like to see. Um, and it would have overwhelmed our National Health Service. Now, uh, that not just morally would be very difficult to deal with, but politically would have been suicidal. So uh, quite reasonably, the Prime Minister saw the implications and, uh, and reset. So I'm, I'm just I'm quick to... ask on that is the issue that, as I understand it, you know, even those who could develop an immunity and are younger and healthier, it's difficult to get them to fully segregate from the more right. vulnerable population. And so you end up, you end up getting the spread to the people that you don't want to have it spread to anyways. Yeah, exactly. So, so if you want to, if you want to, uh, if you want to maintain a sort of a, a, a shielded part of the community, uh, you can't do it because you're getting too much natural spread. 
and that's what we uh, that's what we've moved away from. So the the reality is that you know that's what we're what we're now doing is effectively we're we're stopping people traveling as much as possible. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not quite down in the full Chinese lockdown where people are being welded into their homes, but we're, we are, um, you know, restricting travel as much as possible. So you, know, you can, you can go shopping if you need to, but if you go to a shop, there's a now queuing outside most shops. So that what they do is they restrict the number of people in a shop to try and maintain a sort of two meter distance. And then of course, you know, uh, you've got to maintain personal hygiene levels. So, you know, washing your hands frequently, making sure that, you know, try and touch your face as little as possible um, and, uh, and all that. And those who don't know you should know just how difficult it is for you to maintain personal hygiene. And I know that's been a struggle. We appreciate your sacrifice, Tom. This is, uh, this is, this is, this is the Marines having a go at the army again. No, 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 I get it. <laughs> so, so just quickly, is, is Parliament meeting at all? How is Parliament operating? I mean, how is that working? I mean, we've not, you know, we're not in session in Congress. There's this interesting debate about whether and how we could vote remotely if need be. Uh, what would the cyber vulnerabilities be of that approach? I'd just be curious if there's a similar debate in Parliament happening. Right. So you and I are using Zoom right now, which we know is not an encrypted form of technology. We know that uh, this is a, you know, this is a potentially public platform. In fact, it will be a public platform. For well, and all, apparently, I've been reading all these uh, articles in the last 24 hours that all the engineers for Zoom are in China. So I'm going to have to develop a different platform to do this on. This is like not TikTok, but it's maybe a few degrees removed from TikTok. So what's quite funny about this is actually there are some countries that already do this pretty well. And, and one of them is Estonia. Now, Estonia realized uh, a number of years ago that if you live next to a bear, you'd better think of anti-bear methods pretty early on in your planning. And, uh, and they did. And so if you use uh, some of their uh, products, Skype being one of them, uh, you end up with, uh, apparently, I'm not the expert, but relatively higher levels of encryption than uh, with, with, uh, with some of the others because the Estonian government knew very well when they had their first online cabinet meeting, I think it was 20 years ago, that uh, the Kremlin would be listening. Uh, and, uh, and so they've spent a lot of money, a lot of time uh, investing in technologies that, uh, that the Kremlin would find it harder to listen to. I don't know whether the Kremlin can't listen to, but certainly find it harder. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so I think we, we need to draw a lot of lessons off the Estonians. The Estonians, by the way, have also gone on to a fully electronic system and what they call e-citizenship, which is very interesting, where you can um, sign uh, documents electronically and vote electronically and do many other things electronically. And so I think they're probably one of the few countries that's very little affected in that sense um, by this lockdown. Um, but look, we're having the same debates here about voting online, about holding committee sessions online, and how do we do it? And clearly quite a lot of the stuff that we do, the security element, um, is about fraud, but it's not about privacy. You know, what we say in Parliament is public. Par Parliament is a public session. What we say in committees is public, and and how we vote is public. So that's not the security problem. It's not. We're not. We're not talking about private telephone calls that could be listened to. The, the security issue for us, of course, is the legitimacy of the vote, um, uh, and uh, and that's something we've got to maintain. But actually, given that, you know, you and I. Can see each other if you know if you email me on a separate system and then you tell me face to face what you've done and the two correlate then it's not that difficult yeah. uh, to have security of voting in a public organization like the congress or parliament that's pretty simple yeah but what what is much harder is to is to maintain the uh, 
the, the security, the stability of the system. And so we must make sure we have a system that is stable enough uh, and that can't just be brought down on the whim of foreign power. I'm just, just a total side note here. I'm curious, just as a chair of a committee in parliament, how wedded are you to leadership and the, the prime minister and all the other ministers? In other words, are you considered part of leadership? And I bring this up, and that may be a weird question, because in Congress, if you're a committee chair, you're effectively tied to the majority leader and the speaker if we have. Are you able to sort of go rogue and do your own thing? How does that work? So uh, I'm specifically not tied to the leadership. So my job is to represent parliament and to represent so technically and legally we are a subcommittee of parliament so parliament is the committee and we are one of the subcommittees right and we call it a select committee but it, you know, it's a, just another word for it and so our job is to question and hold the government to account as parliament should not as part of the leadership so um, you know when foreign secretary comes before the foreign Com foreign affairs committee they they don't get an easy ride, right? And it's not the that's not the point of it. The point is that they get challenged on their views, they get challenged on their policies, and indeed, it, you know, some people may think that that's one of the reasons I, my relationship with the prime minister isn't so close because he was the foreign secretary who I was holding him holding to account uh, in the last session of parliament. So, uh, you know, so some may think that that may have a connection, but I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> Very delicately put. Man, I'm so glad we revolted from you guys because your system is so opaque to me. I, I, it's just, I don't understand any of it. Um, okay, so one thing we're seeing here is, you know, it's interesting. We have the Imperial College study that's gotten a lot of attention. We have other articles that are by non-epidemiologists that have gone viral with apocalyptic projections. We've had Stanford professors and other credible voices not denying coronavirus, but saying, hey, these models may be off. And then all of this is filtered through just the, the black hole that is social media combined with active right. Chinese Communist Party propaganda that useful idiots in our media and perhaps yours too are parroting. Talk to us a little bit. Are you seeing what, what, is, what is the frustration around the lack of available evidence in the UK and how is Chinese propaganda playing a role in that disinformation? Sure. So look, you and I are not pandemic experts and and what we're trying to do uh, as politicians i think is to uh, take in as much information as possible to listen to reasonable people and to come up with reasonable uh, policy suggestions based on the intelligence and based on the information that we get i mean it's not it's not rocket science and uh, thank god because we're not rocket scientists but it's it's trying to use uh, the judgment of knowing your community of being a local representative but also uh, listening to national debate. That's right. That's how representative politics works. And that's what we're trying to do. And what's the problem comes when the data is being corrupted. Now, sometimes it's been corrupted accidentally in the sense that it's just very hard to get accurate data from some areas. It's very hard to be certain, for example, what the total number of people who've been infected with this virus is because nobody's testing enough. Nobody at all is testing enough. So we just we just don't know what the reservoir is, is of, of, of people who had the infection but actually shown no symptoms or who've uh, you know, shown very minor symptoms. We just, we just don't have that data. And then there's the active corruption and some of that we're seeing, uh, as you rightly say, that the Chinese Communist Party's foreign affairs spokesman has been claiming that this somehow is you know, introduced by the US military or you know, any number of these bizarre conspiracy theories. That, I mean, they would be laughable if they weren't so serious, right? 
And the, the problem is that being able to make proper policy uh, assessments out of this is really difficult. Now, it's hard enough for you and me when we're reading in English the original documents from sources that we at least have heard of before and therefore recognize. And so, yeah, it's tricky, but you know, you and I know that if it's a Harvard report or an Imperial report, it's probably valid, right? It's, it's got some sort of legitimacy to it. Somebody has hired that guy, somebody has checked the work, somebody has probably, you know, in some way contributed to it, somebody has checked it before it was published. You know, there's a whole series of stuff. Imagine you're from a country that is not used to uh, academic reporting in this way, uh, 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 you know, a state that is not used to freedom of the press, a state that is uh, not used to academic independence in the way that we are. And you get on one side a report from, say, Imperial College uh, that uh, makes certain statements, but you've never heard of Imperial College. You, you don't read the original English. You're reading it in a rather poor translation. And some of the words, therefore, have been not deliberately, but just sort of corrupted in the translation. And then on the other side, you've got a piece of Chinese propaganda. The two look much more legitimate to each other. They look much more equal than they do to you or me. And that's where we've got to realize this, this Chinese communist propaganda is not actually designed to affect you. It's not, it's not trying to make you think that the US military was responsible. You know it wasn't. It's not designed to make me think the US military was responsible. I know it wasn't. It's designed to make countries around the world who have uh, very different systems really question where to turn for the next piece of advice. And this has two effects. The first effect, of course, is an immediate one, which is if we are going to close down this virus, if we are going to get on top of it, get ahead of it, then what we've got to do is we've got to have a global response. And if there are countries around the world that are not responding in a logical, scientifically based manner, then what they're actually doing is they're creating a further reservoir for us to get reinfected later. Now, we don't know yet, for example, whether secondary infections are a major effect. We just don't know. Now, that's nobody's fault. That's not, you know, a failure. It's just a scientific lacuna. Now, we'll get there, but we haven't got there yet. So, is this creating a secondary reservoir that will then come back and reinfect places that have either successfully fought the, uh, the, the virus so far, or maybe about to successfully fight the virus? We don't know. The second effect that it has, of course, is that it's intended to shape the world afterwards. If what you're trying to do is see this coronavirus event as a pivotal moment in modern global history, which I think it will be, and I, I suspect, you know, the economic implications at the very least will make it a major event, bigger even than the financial crisis of 2007-8, then what you're trying to do is you're trying to shape the world afterwards, and that's what the Chinese government's trying to do. They're trying to turn uh, countries that have previously, or up to a point, seen uh, the prosperity brought by things like the World Trade Organization, by uh, international free trade, by partnerships with uh, open economies like ours, uh, as in fact uh, a bad thing, and that what they should instead do is kowtow uh, to a form of mercantile colonialism that, uh, that is beginning to spread out of Beijing. I've been shocked at how brazen it's been. I mean, it seems the signal has just gone up and all the United Front entities around the world are responding right now. I mean, from the very obvious of, you know, Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, joins Twitter and his first tweet is, you know, crates of supplies he's shipping to his friends in 
America and Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, welcomes him to, I think it was yesterday, two days ago, there was paid content in Politico from the Huawei's, uh, some Orwellian title, it was their chief representative to EU institutions. And it was just a, a column saying, you know, we have only altruistic motives here. We're, we're all Europeans today. That was the headline of the article. And so I just be curious, maybe help, help connect this, what China's doing to, let's say, exploit the coronavirus crisis to what it's been doing for a long time and what you have been on the leading edge of warning us about in terms of trying to dominate the future of 5G and just telecommunications more broadly. So look, I, I didn't I didn't start off uh, uh, as a China hawk, and I certainly still don't consider myself one. I, I see myself as trying to defend um, the world in which uh, the values that matter to the people of the United Kingdom, and more particularly to the people of Kent, uh, prosper. And those values are, you know, freedom, uh, democracy, um, the ability to challenge authority, and the ability to trade and travel globally. I mean, I think those are those are pretty simple values. Now, I'm not and cricket. Quite, Don't forget cricket and cricket, of course, and cricket. And and this is one of the reasons why you know America fails so miserably on so many counts. But, <laughs> but it's only a matter of time before we'll get you away from baseball. Don't worry. The uh, the um, but the you know I don't think these are particularly contentious uh, ideas. But in trying to defend them or in trying to understand them uh, better uh, as a foreign policy. Um, as an element of our foreign policy. One of the things that we started to do was look at how, this was a couple of years ago, we decided to look at how our relationship with China is going, given that you know, we've been in a so-called golden era with China between the UK and China for the last five or so years. How's it going? So we asked, not unreasonably, I think we asked for visas to go and visit China. And uh, the request was very welcomed and accepted and the Chinese embassy were extremely helpful. Uh, in getting the committee to visit China. And the visa didn't come. And it took a while. And eventually, the visa uh, guy phoned up and said, look, one of your number has been to Taiwan, and um, you can't have him on the trip. I said, look, I'm, I'm really sorry. This is pretty simple. Either the Foreign Affairs Committee travels, or it doesn't travel. Now, you're perfectly entitled to refuse Foreign Affairs Committee of the UK Parliament that you're allowed to do, but what you're not allowed to do is to choose who is on the committee and who is not. That's decided by the British Parliament. So do you want us to go or not? And eventually they said, okay, okay, and they let us go, including the guy who'd been to Taiwan. And what became quite obvious afterwards when we wrote up our report, which I have to say I thought was pretty reasonable, which uh, you can read it online on the Foreign Affairs Committee uh, website on parliament.uk, it set out some challenges that we have going forward. And some of those challenges are to do with uh, British academic uh, institutions being influenced by Chinese politics. Now, this isn't secret. We know about the uh, Confucius Institutes and we know about the attempt to influence you know, universities in California and Australia and Canada. You know, we, this isn't news. But I got such a, what I would describe as shirty uh, letter back from the uh, ambassador telling me off uh, for my uh, you know, temerity uh, in, in, in calling out China's actions in, in various areas, that I started to question what more was going on. And that's when we started to look at 
different areas and it became pretty obvious to me uh, and indeed to the whole of the committee that what we're beginning to see is not uh, a sort of a an accidental growth but actually a policy which is seeing an expansion of Chinese uh, political influence uh, through uh, various deliberate means and some of them are economic some of them are political some of them are academic some of them you know there's a whole series of there's a whole series of routes and you know some of them link to the Belt and Road and some of them link to Huawei and some of them link to ZTE but there's a whole series of routes where we're seeing a different way of uh, governing the world being uh, being being imposed now you know you can quite reasonably make the case that China wasn't a major player in the 50s and 60s and 70s when these rules were being created and so China does have a legitimate right to say look these rules were written before our you know before our rise and therefore we have a, a, a we have a right to have a voice in how they're changing and I, I accept that what I don't accept is that uh, that means that we have to bow to China's rules that I don't accept at all and that sadly is what we're seeing and that's why you know things like the, the theft of intellectual property that we've seen undermining so much of the WTO or indeed um, you know, the uh, seasteading that we're seeing undermining the UN law of the sea, uh, you know, all these different policies we're seeing undermining the sort of uh, legitimate organizations. In fact, the, the, the disinformation that we're now seeing going through the WHO, uh, you know, undermining these in, uh, organizations is making it harder and harder and harder for those of us who are trying to uh, maintain the open system of prosperity and free trade that let's not kid ourselves has made China rich um, seem to uh, seem to find it very difficult to, to do and and this you know this response to the coronavirus it's not a one-off this is an entirely in keeping with a pattern of disinformation of seeking tactical opportunity rather than strategic gain and indeed of utter callousness with the lives of their own people uh, let alone ours so the the fault line in this bigger debate about whether China that you and I have been working on a lot in the last three years has been this this question of Huawei, ZTE, and 5G. I think there were a lot of people in America that were taken aback by the recent decision by Prime Minister Johnson to allow Huawei to maintain parts of your peripheral network, um, compete, I think, for future parts of the network. Maybe, well, just explain it to us. Sure. Explain the state of the debate uh, over Huawei in the UK? Sure, look, the Huawei debate is not a new one in the UK. We've had Huawei uh, in our systems to a varying degree since 2003. So, uh, you know, at a time when, you know, trying to join the WTO in 2001, we thought at the time that, you know, international free trade would encourage people to uh, cooperate more broadly. And we thought that um, China would be brought more into a sort of an open, internationalist system uh, if we traded more freely and, th and that was the you know that was that was the policy assumption well it turned out not to work okay it was a reasonable policy assumption it just turned out to be wrong okay fine but when things turn out to be wrong you should then change the policy assumption right because you've tested it we're trying to do the same thing again and i think that's where the mistake comes in so look when huawei uh, uh, was being looked at as to whether or not it should be part of the 5G market. The uh, National Cyber Security Center here, a bunch of our best tech geeks, uh, took a really hard look at the market and uh, evaluated it and described it as a high-risk vendor. whole series of different reasons uh, that I won't go into, but all online. You can, you can read the report online. 
and it's a it's it's a very thorough report and it does say that the government can mitigate the risk and I, I'm not I'm not the guy with the noughts and ones running around in my head and, and so if the cyber geeks tell me that they can mitigate it I accept that but mitigate doesn't mean eliminate mitigate means reduce it does not mean reduce to zero so the government read that and has decided that they can manage by having Huawei in only 30 odd percent, about a third of our 5G network. Now the problem that I see is that this isn't about having Huawei in a third of our network, it's having Huawei in any of our network that's the problem. Because what we're doing is we are allowing a business that has used uh, anti-competitive practices, effectively uh, what in many other industries would be called dumping, you know, where you sell products at the low market rate in order to drive out competition. We're, we're seeing that happening in the tech industry. We're seeing uh, holes in uh, Huawei technology that uh, when it was in uh, Italy's Vodafone network, uh, was a, it was reported by Bloomberg as being a, a, a backdoor uh, into the network. And we're seeing, we're seeing the, uh, the, the way that the company operates, its, its cooperation, its deep cooperation with the Chinese state um, in places like Tanzania and uh, indeed in South Africa and Pakistan, where we're seeing very strong accusations I, and, uh, uh, and indeed quite a lot of evidence that Huawei is part of the uh, Communist Party's uh, intelligence apparatus, effectively. A, a remote part of it, I accept, but still part of it. And that's, that's a real problem. So I have to say, when the Huawei decision was made, Many of us were pretty surprised. I mean, there's not much point in taking back control from Brussels only to hand it over to Beijing. Uh, and so we were, we were pretty upset when, uh, when the government did that. Now, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to rebel against my government. I mean, like you, I'm, uh, I'm a, a loyal conservative. Uh, I, you know, I think that the Conservative Party is, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think it's the best party to govern the United Kingdom. And I, I know that you're, uh, you know, you're a loyal Republican as well. And you see that party loyalty matters and it's not just about you know my, my party right or wrong it's about how do you get things to happen you need to build a team you need to work together and so you don't rebel against that team lightly you really don't but for me this was such an important issue i i couldn't support the government on it i just couldn't uh, because this is an issue that we're going to have to live with in fact my kids are going to have to live with for the next you know 20 30 40 years are you seeing Huawei, uh, they're doing a version of this here in the United States where they will pay former senators, former members of Congress, former high-level cybersecurity and homeland security officials to you know, be, basically perpetuate their narratives? Are you seeing a version of that in the UK as well? Yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. You know, I mean, uh, their parliamentary spokesperson is a guy I used to know uh, who was an MP up until 2017. You know, I mean you look at their board in the UK and it's the great and the good, you know, I mean, it's, you're seeing the same sort of narrative. And the, the problem is of course, that on one level, they've got a point. And the point that they've got, which is legitimate, is that there is an element of Huawei, which is another legitimate corporate enterprise, right? I mean, they do actually make networks and they do actually make nodes and they sell them and that's fine. What's not fine, is the fact that this is part of a much larger Chinese strategy uh, to dominate uh, uh, an industry by eliminating competition. And that's not fine. You know, we're seeing that the market has gone from having, you know, 15 or so network providers uh, about 10 years ago, 
to now there's about five or six. Like, that's a real problem. It's a real problem because actually, you know, I, I'm not a monopolistic conservative. I don't, I don't want monopolies, whether it's state monopolies or private sector monopolies. I want to have competition, right? I think that's what makes markets stronger. I think that's what makes industry stronger. I think that's what builds opportunity. And in the UK, that's a really hard market now because now, uh, for various uh, market reasons, the, uh, the market has been massively reduced. Now, allowing Huawei to dump technology at below market prices because it is massively subsidized by Chinese state banks merely deepens that monopoly. So whether or not you end up buying Huawei doesn't matter. If you're totally dependent on another single firm, you find yourself in a very, very difficult position. And so actually this is for competitive reasons, for geopolitical reasons, frankly, just for reasons of, uh, of, of security and, and personal liberty. This is the wrong answer. Now, I do think uh, Prime Minister Johnson has a point when he says, okay, when it comes to the non-Huawei alternatives, there's no integrated solution in the same way that Huawei can basically offer 5G in a box, right? You're dealing with one company, not the same thing, you know, and certainly in America, we disinvested in certain hardware components of telecommunication, though we are very good, if not dominant in certain software components. Do you think there's room for some sort of some way in which like-minded free world countries, Nokia, Ericsson, Samsung, you know, all of our people on the software side here could band together to be able to offer an integrated solution or figure out a way that we can get at that fundamental issue whereby Huawei could undercut their competitors by 30% because they're getting funding from the CCP. Do you see, I, I don't think we even need to do that. I mean, I think what we need to do is we need to agree that there are certain principles that we are going to say vendors must apply by, right? First of all, you're not allowed to have a security deal with a, uh, a hostile state, okay? You, you cannot be dependent on a state that writes a law that says that you have to cooperate with them in intelligence matters if that state is a hostile state. Now, that's, you know, that's what Huawei's done, right? That's what Huawei and ZTE have. It's not their fault. I'm not blaming them, but that's what Chinese state law says, right? So if we say that we won't do business with countries, sorry, with companies that do that. Secondly, we won't allow anybody to have more than a 30% market share of our uh, networks, whether they are Western or anywhere else companies. Then what we'll do is we'll grow competition. And that's actually what we need. Because look, I have no criticism of Nokia or Ericsson or Samsung or Fujitsu or uh, Cisco or any of the others who are, who are playing in this in this water at the moment. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I think all of us would agree that there is somewhere out there in someone's backyard, a company waiting to be started that will also have a share of this. And, you know, 5G, 6G, 7G, all of these different systems uh, need to have the ability to grow. Now, they can't grow if all the money is being swallowed up by one single whale. We need to have plenty more fish in the sea, and we can only get that if we if we refuse to allow uh, the market domination that we're seeing. So, on simply on a competitive basis, I think that uh, you know nations like the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, but actually others like France have already said no to Huawei, Germany that's in the process of making that decision. You know, countries like that could easily say, "Look, we're not going to have this. We're going to have a free market." And if we did that. We would not be shaping our own market or not just shaping our own market. We'd also be shaping the market of countries like India and Brazil 
countries that maybe wouldn't have exactly the same rules, but when they saw the different levels of competition, we would spur much greater uh, progress in the industry and we were allow, would allow others, as I say, like India, to pig, piggyback off us when they don't really want to have deals with Chinese tech companies that have deals with uh, Ministry of State Security either. So one final serious question before we go into the final fun round of this whole thing. Um, and the translation for those who are wondering why Tom said ZTE and not ZTE, it's because Britain's a weird place. They also pluralize maths, which I've never understood. It's just math. You don't need the S. Um, so what it, you, you gave this great speech in which you, I think, colorfully but accurately said, you know, described this as nesting a dragon within the UK's network. What is the state of the opposition right now? You know, but the dragon slayers, if you will, but also there's, you know, this group of wolverines that's been discussed. People that, are, that, have, that have kind of opposed the government's decision and are trying to offer a different path. How big is that group? And, you know, what opportunities will you have going forward to, you know, shift, the, shift course on this? So look, the, the, the opposition that you saw voting against the government in parliament when was it? It feels like a year ago, but actually it was only a couple of weeks ago, uh, saw 38 members of the Conservative Party rebel against the Conservative whip. And that's, you know, that's a big number, only three months after an election, right? I mean, that's, you know, when, when the Prime Minister is at his strongest and, you know, people don't like to rebel so soon. So that was a, that was a big, uh, that was a big number, particularly as, bluntly, it wasn't the right bill to rebel on. That was really a symbolic bill. So there was quite a lot of the new members who were thinking about whether or not to rebel, who I uh, encouraged to think hard about it because it wasn't really the moment. Because the real moment is coming up. Oh, hi, Beatrice. Hang on a minute. Can we we're gonna go into the fun round so she can join us for that. Do you wanna come? Beatrice, can you help us out? And you want Shaun the Sheep? She wants to watch Shaun the Sheep. Can you wait one second? Absolutely. Excuse me. <laughs> that is so cute. Sean the Sheep is being watched right now. Um, so for those who don't know, the Wolverines is, I don't know how they got this name, whether it was the press in the UK or in, in the US, uh, that was be, it was a name being applied to this group of insurgents. And I don't know if Tom would identify himself as one of this specific group that are opposing Prime Minister Johnson's decision to allow the Chinese Communist Party controlled company Huawei to compete and remain on Britain's network. Uh, there is a substantial number of members of parliament that indeed are opposing that decision. And I believe there's going to be a process where they get another chance to review it. And they propose maybe taking that 30% down over time to 10 or 0%. Um, but what I'm trying to get at is you know, what is the state of the opposition? Okay, good. I was running out of things to say there, Tom. You gotta love Netflix. Good. Sorry. <laughs> New form of nannying. Sorry, this is terrible. <laughs> the the um, so yeah, so so that that was the first that was the first stage, if you like. The second stage is coming up in in June, July, when there is an actual vote on the government's proposal to put you know to allow thirty percent of the market to be uh, to to allow Huawei to have thirty percent of the market and to allow Huawei in at all. And at that moment, that's the real vote. And I have to say, I find it very, very difficult to see how we don't, if we got 38 rebelling on something that was frankly totemic, but not significant, how we don't get more rebelling uh, when it really is significant. And particularly after the, the, the pandemic that we're going through, which 
you know, has exposed China uh, very, very clearly. I mean, it hasn't, for those of us who've been following China for a number of years, uh, this hasn't taught us anything new, but what it has done is it has advertised it to a global audience in a very, uh, in a much broader fashion. Okay, so in this, this final fun round, in the minutes we have left, as Sean the Sheep is playing in the background, um, we're going to go highbrow and we're going to go lowbrow, Tom. So if we were to highbrow, if we were to go into your library in your home in Kent, give us a flavor for what we might find there. And you don't, even if it's not specific titles, just give us kind of what's your digest of, of books, of you know, is it all nonfiction? Is there fiction? Just give us a, just a, a sense no, just, of, of, of Tom Tugendhat, the scholar. So, <laughs> not quite sure anybody's ever called me that before. But the, uh, so I do, I, do read, uh, I do read history. I read, uh, funnily enough, I read quite a lot of uh, stuff that's uh, about the sort of lives that we've been through. So I've, I've been reading Emma Skye's The Unraveling, which is fantastic for anybody who hasn't read it. Absolutely amazing book. Um, I've also been reading, in fact, I'm reading at the moment, The Radetzky March, which is a novel about the, uh, the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, the empire that my grandfather fought for when he fought for the Austrian Empire against the Italians in the, uh, in the White War, as it was called in 1915-16. Um, so I've been, reading, I've been reading those. What else? You'd find a lot of P.G. Woodhouse. I don't know if you've read Jeeves and Worcester, but they are incredibly funny, uh, and I strongly recommend them. Um, what else? Find do you read poetry uh, at all? This yeah, is a divisive but it, it, question. Yeah, I do. I'm not I suggesting it. I do, but yeah. <laughs> You're allowed to. It's okay. So uh, so I read a bit of Seamus Heaney occasionally. The, the Irish ambassador very kindly, actually, for Christmas a number of years ago, gave me a, a book of Seamus Heaney's verse, and I hadn't read it before. I hadn't read it since school, I should imagine. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's, really, it's really pretty fantastic, actually. I've been trying to learn poetry as well, because I, I try to keep my Pashtu going by, by learning Pashtu poetry, but I, I have to say, it, it's so bad. I'm so bad at it. But yeah, my, my Pashtu poetry has really just, you know, it's fallen into disrepair uh, as well. Okay, we're gonna go mid-brow before we go low-brow here. So I have a theory that uh, the BBC produce exceptional content, uh, whether it's Luther, which is one of my favorite shows of all time, right. Sherlock, which is great as well. The list goes on and on. I have a sort of a, a half-baked hypothesis that there is an inverse relationship between the decline of empire and the rise of art and humor. And I think that's most prominently expressed in Britain why is it that the BBC produced such fantastic shows? You see, what I love is that you assume that the decline of empire is because, you know, Britain is no longer dominating. You, you, you as, as, as so many Americans, fail to realize that you are the legacy of empire. What we are living through, you see, is very much a British empire rebranded. You're, you're, you're UK empire 2.0. You call yourselves Americans, but you're just Englishmen abroad. Oh, wow. Wow. Very, very interesting. Very interesting theory. I do think the, the, the sort of British sense of humor is, is a, a treasure. It's very, it's very unique. It's very dry. And uh, it's something that I admire greatly. Um, oh, what, okay, what else was I going to say? Okay, we're going to move to lowbrow here. Okay, so when you, you, know, when you're, when you put down the past poetry, when you're not reading obscure histories about the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, and when Shaun the Sheep is not playing on Netflix and Beatrice is in bed, what, what sort of guilty pleasures do you have as far as watching uh, is concerned? 
Oh God, I, I love uh, Narcos. I don't know if you watched it on Netflix. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, proper, <laughs> well, really grim, yeah. <laughs> really <Right>. properly grim. <laughs> um, what else? I mean, I, I, I love that. The, um, there's a whole bunch of shows. I have to say one of the best things about being uh, in lockdown is, you know, you don't have to feel guilty about doing a box set in an evening because, hey, what are you going to do in the morning anyway? That's right. That's right. Uh, okay. So final, final question here. Uh, let's say you walk into a bar in Green Bay, Wisconsin, or in East Kent, East Kent, right? Not West Kent. And West Kent. I, I represent West Kent, East Kent. Oh, West Kent. I'm sorry. You originally from East Kent. Got it. Yeah. Um, and a young kid comes up to you and says, Tom, I am interested in uh, being a member of parliament one day. I really want to serve my country. What advice do you have for me? Do anything else first. <laughs> do anything else first. Serve your country. Find out who you are. Find out about your community before you decide to represent it. Now, that may not be join the military as we did, but it could be start a business, work in, a, work in medicine, work in a care home. You know, do anything else first. Make sure you know the community before you try and represent it because... Once you're, once you're in post, it's too late to learn. You, you keep trying to learn, but actually you don't have time. So you're constantly falling back on experiences from before you were elected. I'm sure that you find that the same as true for you. But you're constantly, for you, flying between Wisconsin and Washington. You're on the road the whole time. You're calling people the whole time. You're trying to strike you know, the best deal you can for the folk you represent the whole time. You just don't have time to do the soft learning that you do before you get elected. So if you're thinking about representing your community, make sure you know it. That is exceptional advice. There's a Kissinger quote to the effect of, and I'm going to murder it now, you know, the intellect, people, people don't gain in knowledge or intellectual capital while in office. They consume what they've previously built up. And what you said reminded me of that. I didn't know that. There you go. I'm I'll send it to you afterwards. It's, I probably got maybe 5% of that. Right. Uh, Tom, thank you for uh, your friendship. Thank you for the time here. Uh, I'm going to go out and say, you know, you know, I'm gonna, I'm placing a bet in Vegas on you being prime minister one day, um, and I'm proud to say that I will have known you when. And uh, please, put it on red, you're more likely to win. Now Beatrice is going to be famous in the United States, so thank her as well for participating in this great conversation. Well, she's a star, and Mike, thank you very much for your friendship, and thank you as well for uh, leading the fight as well in, uh, in so many important areas in, in, in the Congress, because you know, how we shape this next generation is, you know, for Beatrice and, uh, and other kids is going to be down to how we work together uh, across, the, across the Atlantic as we have done in the past. So it's up to us to decide what matters to us and to fight for it. Well said, thank you, my friend.